Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Hello, welcome everyone to Star Trek from the Holodeck. Okay, so today we're here yet again to discuss Star Trek Lower Decks, Season 4, Episode 8, titled Caves. If you're new to our show, you can find all of our episodes, past, present, and in the future, wherever you listen to podcasts, just search Star Trek from the Holodeck. Be sure to give us a thumbs up and leave us a review whether it be spotify or itunes which are our two preferred places for our listeners to listen to our show also youtube listeners or youtube viewers make sure you click like and subscribe that's how we continue to grow all right hello david how are you how's it going dude this this show keeps surprising me every single episode for this season i mean this whole entire season has been like I know it started off slow for us in the very beginning, but every single episode I've noticed has more and more substance to it as the season has gone on. Each episode is actually getting better. Yeah. It, now there's, I'm not saying it's a, it's a complete incline. There might no. be a little bit of a, you know, a, a plateau if, if you will, yeah. but then you'll we, see an uptick. We get it. Yes. We get that little bit of an incline there. And this is one of those episodes that I feel like stands above the rest of the season. And that might confuse people because at face value, this is a very simplistic episode. But if you start digging into the things that are being said, this is probably the first truly relevant episode of star trek now i'm not trying to marginalize all the other great episodes they've done but this episode actually has some real social commentary oh yeah which is what star trek does best you have the idea of this post-truth world that we live in most of us understand what that means pretty much the idea that whatever political spectrum you find yourselves on we don't believe anything we are all skeptics now which i'm i'm a firm believer of being a skeptic. I think we should all question things. That's isn't that the very embodiment of the human condition well, that's to the, question, to want to know, you know, the ontology of certain things, the nature of, of phenomenon. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, skepticism is great, but we all know that it has gone awry over mm-hmm. the last 10, 15 years. So you have an episode that delves into that with things like, Wolf 359 was a tragedy. You exist, and Picard is not a hologram, and Voyager's EMH is. So you have lines like that that are clearly drawing a line in the sand when it comes to this post-truth world that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is like, this is, for me, this entire season, this episode truly feels like it is touching on the essence of Roddenberry storytelling when it comes to Star Trek. 
because the whole point of Roddenberry, just like what you you mentioned earlier about how philosophy and the the the, the essence of questioning one's humanity, that it all is the basis that Roddenberry built Star Trek on. So here we are with Lord Dex, a, a little animated comedy show touching on the essence of Star Trek, actually hearkening back storytelling wise, what Roddenberry started the entire franchise on. And it's something that basically is Star Trek fans. We always want our Star Trek to have that bit of Roddenberry-ness to it. Oh, it has to. It has to. And like this episode in caves for me, it was so weird watching it because like I felt like I was watching a old episode from the time of TNG, the first few seasons, or even like the uh, TOS era, that type of storytelling. I was feeling the vibes of that. Yes. In this episode. Yes, you're absolutely right. The backdrop, the setting is very much hearkening back to some of those classic episodes. But David, something that Mike McMahon and his writers were doing with this episode. So they're playing in the same sandbox of of Star Trek, typical Star Trek, especially when it comes to the aspects of social commentary. But they're playing in a far corner of the sandbox that actually hasn't really been played within very often within Star Trek. Now, a lot of it has to do with the fact that this post-truth dilemma is a relatively new concept. Yes. Obviously the idea of postmodernism and reevaluating the way we view things and it's, you know, ontic attributes. Obviously we, uh, we have always been doing that over the course of the last, what century and a half, roughly Yeah. as a culture, as a society. But when it comes to Star Trek, the timelines that we're in currently in everyday life, we've never been at this particular moment in time when it comes to being skeptics when it comes to the fact that we don't know what's right there are a lot of just straight up untruths out there that are being propagated as truth so to have an episode of star trek actually delve into something entirely relevant and it happens to be lower decks Mm -hmm. is pretty fucking great david especially because since 2017 when the kurtzman era had started you know brought you know, rejuvenated Star Trek and brought it back. They have not once delved into this concept yet. And it's a shame that we haven't had a live action Star Trek do it yet. But here we are, Mike McMahon, knowing, knowing what has not been done, knowing full well that the post-truth world is a thing right now. And hey, let me use my comedic, expertise and my own unique way of commenting Mm -hmm. on society. Let me do it here. And he did it really well. Oh yeah. Very well. And we'll get to all the ins and outs because there's a lot more than just that. That's why this episode's strong because there is an entire, I don't want to say hierarchy. There's (laughs) tons of different aspect to this episode that are tied to the notion of post-truth but also bleeds into the abject and other aspects that star trek doesn't always veer into um but we'll get into that as well now the synopsis of the episode the lower deckers go on a classic cave mission the episode was written by megan lloyd and directed by ben rogers okay so 
for the most part, the episode was written as flashbacks, you know, little vignettes, if you will. And the backdrop was this idea of morality tests being mm-hmm. given by the Vendorians. They yeah. originally were first seen way back in the Star Trek animated series. Yes. And since then, we've, I believe they mentioned them. We might have seen one because they seem familiar. I believe they were seen in the first season of Lower Decks. Mm-hmm. Or mentioned. I can't, I don't. They were mentioned. Okay. And but we've never been able to see them since the animated series. Okay. Is that what it was? Because I know they were in the episode Envoy. Let me see if I can find it. I had it here with my notes. Um, it looks like they were just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. In the episode titled envoys from season one episode two so since then there hasn't been anything of merit when it comes to the vendorians and because like when you go back to how they were introduced the whole concept of the vendorians is like they are a society that constantly judges others they're like um they they, they're up there with like the guardians of forever where they're always but but they're not super beings they're not super beings but they always are watching and studying and uh trying to figure out other races through their morality yeah and that's the difference it's such a cool concept it's such a star trek it's such a star trek thing because like there are there have been races in star trek that you know are quote-unquote watchers but the vendurians are the ones that are truly the ones that test vendorians yeah if you think about it the vendorians are they're they're their, their way of thinking is similar to like Q. Q is constantly judging us. You know, he judges humanity. He judges all living beings whatsoever. Doesn't matter if it's like a planetary thing. The Vendurians, they physically, t- uh, they physically challenge and, and kind of uh, study beings. So like in a lot of ways, the, the, the concept of like, Q, a, a challenging, a challenging like entity, um, started with the Vendurians because it's on a smaller scale. Yeah, I can see that totally. The, I want to see these characters and other iterations of Star Trek now. Can you imagine if they did a live action? It would be really cool, just special effects. I can wise. see Discovery dealing with this. Yeah, absolutely, they seem to really excel. In the odd aliens, that's something that you can point to discovery, whether you like their narrative and their story directions, just set that aside for a moment. But if you look at all the aliens that they've introduced into their show shows, very unique, well, especially no. the, you know, the Kelpians and yes. then the, uh, the opposing prey species. I forget their name now. I mean, some of the best visuals. So Yes, please, more <laughs> Vendorians. Well, not, not only that, I think the concept of Vendorians just thematically would actually fit well in Discovery. Especially since Discovery, out of all the other Star Trek series in this new era, has explored the nuances of morality and there ethics more than any other series so far. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it does seem like a perfect fit. Okay, so let's get into some film theory 
Because there, yeah, film theory. Because that's there's right. a lot. Because there's a lot. There's this a is, lot. <laughs> I know last episode, David, I said, let me refrain from over intellectualizing things that shouldn't be, you know, intellectualized. This isn't that. Yes. This actually is there. And there's a lot of great stuff. So the flashback vignettes in this particular Star Trek episode are designed as we had said, as morality tests, reminiscent of Star Trek's commitment to ethical exploration and philosophical dilemmas, right? Yes. So these tests challenge the character's understanding of their own values and beliefs, which reflect there is a French philosopher known as Kristeva, Julia Kristeva. Kristeva was a French psychoanalyst, philosopher, and literary theorist. She did a lot of work in the horror fields as well. She found that interesting when it came to film. And this aspect of her, some of her theories reflects Kristeva's notion of the abject as they confront unsettling aspects of their identities. And of course, I'm speaking of the Lower Decks crew. So the Vendorians, the enigmatic shape-shifting beings, they serve as a metaphor for the fluidity of identity yes. and the boundaries of the self, which echo Kristeva's ideas on the abject. Their ability to assume various forms prompts the crew to question their assumptions about the nature of truth, mirroring Kristeva's exploration of how we construct our identities and understand the so-called other. Now, in the context of the post-truth world, Star Trek delves into the idea that truth can be elusive and subjective which aligns also with Kristeva's focus on the instability of language and meaning. And we know Star Trek always aligns and parallels that aspect of, uh, or I should say those similar aspects as well, pertaining to language and the meaning of language and communication as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, the tragic events at Wolf 359, Q, and the holographic nature of Picard, or so-called, and Voyager's <laughs> EMH challenge, the crew's perception of reality which reflect the theme of uncertainty. And this is the key word here, which ties in to the Vendorians. Uncertainty and existential dread akin to Lovecraftian horror. Why do you think the Vendorians look Lovecraftian yes. in design? Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. That, that, that just was a dead giveaway. When you really look at the designs of the Vendorians, it is a call to Lovecraft, to Call of Cthulhu to creatures that basically are beyond our senses. It's beyond our understanding, which has a lot to do with subjective experience. It's not objective, mm -hmm. it's subjective. And then you throw in the notion of the post-truth world, which also is actually, I want to say also, but is a symptom of the, of the over-subjectivity that we now lend to our reality. There is so much subjectivity now that we can't pinpoint what is actually objective truth and whether or not there is objective truth. Now, Michael Shermer, uh, he's a well-known science writer and skeptic, and he's discussed this idea in his work and lectures. And the basic premise is that some individuals, when it comes to the post-truth world we are living in, are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories because they have a general inclination to view the world through a lens of suspicion and distrust which goes hand in hand with the disillusionment and the lack of trust that we have with our institutions, which Star Trek has always been 
a franchise that ex- has always explored the relationship between humanity and our perceived institutions of yes. power or the hegemonic forces or powers, you know, whether they be small or large. So you have this idea that the knowledge of past conspiracies, whether small or large, can contribute to a heightened sense of skepticism and an increased willingness to entertain conspiracy theories, which we had this in the episode. So now taking the idea of this post-truth world and the idea that everyone's a skeptic and we have this rise of conspiratory ideas, there are reasons, there are actual rational reasons behind why we believe in conspiracies. It's because throughout history, there have actually been conspiracies that have proven to be true. True. Yeah. And that's what they actually insinuated in this episode of Lower Decks. That, oh, yeah. we're, yes, we're in a post-truth world. Yes, there are radicals that don't believe anything. But there's also a rational reason behind why we don't believe everything. Because we have been lied to. And that's what was so genius about this episode is because when the radical conspiracy theorist ends up being right, mm-hmm. you now question other truths exactly. or so-called truths. Yeah, and that 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 was the beauty of that story between Boimler and Levy, where that was the character's name. Yeah, Levy basically, yeah, is the atypical. When he's first introduced, he's introduced as this crazy conspiracy theorist. But throughout the entire story, you realize the person being on trial is Boimler because Boimler is looking at Levy and his conspiracy theories and looking at him at a lower level, thinking he's basically below him and treating him like that. And I thought the really beautiful moment of that story was coming down to the terms that Boimler goes on this rant of like why no one likes Steve Levy. And then Levy just looks at him and says, well, I'm just, I just want to help at the crux of everything. That is what a conspiracy theorist, like anyone who's like that is looking to do. They just want to find help. They want to, they want, or they want to give help. Because they see a problem in society. There you go. There's usually some problem that they may not even be aware they of. They may not be, and they don't understand what it, how to properly put it into, yeah. into their brain. Well, isn't that the line that uh, Boimler said, essentially, as he was being dragged off? He said, I thought you were just paranoid. Paranoid schizophrenic. Something like <laughs> paranoid anxiety made up by people who needed an imagined enemy to simulate order in an unrelated disaster. So life doesn't feel so random and chaotic. And that, that was, that, that was, is such a fucking genius line yes. because at the center of a lot of conspiracy theories, sociologically speaking, a lot of philosophers and sociologists have studied the phenomenon of conspiracies. And that at its core is the reason why so many people believe in conspiracies because they're trying to make sense of a chaotic and random world that doesn't make sense. And now that harkens even further back to the early French philosopher, Albert Camus, who talks about the world being absurd and how it is indifferent to us, meaning we don't matter. We're just cogs in this, in this grand cosmic wheel. Mm -hmm. And like, like when you get down to it, that was at the point when I sat back watching this episode going, oh, this is going to be a pretty interesting episode now because they're throwing out like film theory moments like that where, yeah. <laughs> where Boiler just spells it out. And, he, and I thought it was such a clever way of doing it because not only is it kind of like that 
moment of truth for it's, a character. It's on the nose. But it's this, on the nose. This is a series that can do on the nose. Exactly. Because of the way that McMahon and his writing crew write satire. Yeah. Satire is a wonderful weapon when it comes to storytelling. If you want to actually do film theory and look, make it make it look good. Because like many times people try to do it way too serious and it just goes over the your audience's head. But here, Mike McMahon's able to actually show us, I could take a film theory idea, not quite dumb it down, but dilute it enough so that my mass audience can understand it or even at least question it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to take the thought a little deeper, there are other explanations behind why people believe in conspiracy theories. And that has a lot to do well, I, I guess you can say it can be attached or associated with with what Boimler had said as as he was being carted off. Yeah. When it comes to the mundane or uh, the random acts of chaos and has a lot to do, according to many philosophers who've also studied this this uh, conspiracy phenom is that and this is kind of sad in a lot of ways. Um, the idea that people are drawn to conspiracy theories because they find it difficult to accept the mundane or that they desire to feel more important Yes, is often associated with existentialist and postmodern thought. But it's this idea that we need to feel important. We need to have meaning in our life. And that's why it, it typically this idea or this line of thinking typically aligns with existentialist thought yes. because even if people don't consider themselves existentialists, if you are gravitating to conspiracy theories, it's because your life doesn't feel fulfilled. Yes. And you need answers for questions that there may not be answers to. And conspiracy theories help situate and center people who are, who are feeling existential, who don't understand the meaning of certain things. And they are trying to find that meaning. So yet again, another idea that the writers from Lower Decks brings to the surface mm -hmm. that is actually extremely relevant. And despite all of the, the nonsense that's going on with this, um, you know, anti-woke, woke world and the culture wars that we're in, this particular social, comment, social commentary on the post-truth world is probably one of the biggest problems that we have today plaguing American society. And that's why... I love this episode and I love that Mike McMahon was willing to go there in 26 minutes and do it right. That's the amazing part too, isn't it? It's like every single episode we come away and we're like baffled how this writing team can work within the time allotment they're given, which is like 27 to 30 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. While other shows out there have two hours. Ahsoka. <laughs> you just had to go there, didn't you? Yeah. But like have 40 minutes, 20 minutes, and it takes 58 them, minutes and do nothing with it. Yeah. And it takes them forever. Yeah. It even takes them an extra episode <laughs> to get to their point. Yeah. And here's, here's Mike McMahon and his crew just going, yeah, you know what? I'm going to tackle this film theory in 27 minutes. David, you know what I've decided after this, after this episode, I don't want Mike McMahon to wallow his existence and his talent. I don't want him to wallow in satire forever. The problem I, is I have, I would love to see him be a showrunner of a live action Star Trek. I believe he has the ability to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm partially with you there, 
but the but the problem is when you when you're dealing with like film theory at least this is my opinion of like whenever i actually see this being done in any medium mm-hmm. whatsoever the strength of being a satirist and doing a comedy show you have that uh, it's a different skill set it's a different skill set uh, yes. but it's also it is a crutch it is a very useful cr- tool as a writer to fall back on because you can always feel I could be a satirist. I don't I don't have to make it too serious. Okay. So you you think possibly this is Mike McBan's jam. This, this is, is what he does jam. best. Yeah. And maybe he's not able to do things as well. As well in live action because you're expected to You can't just have a satire a satirical Star Trek live yeah. action and think, that's all it is. Yeah. Think about think about I get this. What you're saying. It's it's what happened with the Strange New Worlds episode when they did the crossover. I honestly think that was my litmus test for, for yeah, Mike McMahon's I, storytelling yeah. where it was like, okay, could you do a, could you do a lower decks episode in the vein of strange new worlds where it's live action? And you, you could to some degree, but it was a hit or miss episode because you, I always felt that as the writers, the writers of that episode, they, they kind of pulled back a little bit because they're like, Oh, we can't push too far because it's live action. We don't know if it'll go across well with, especially if how the actors take it. Yeah. In animation, there's nothing like that. There's nothing holding you back because it's That's, so much easier. Good points. It's so much easier for an actor to just go, I'm just throwing my voice into this. Yeah. Fine. I'm having fun. Yeah. I, I don't know if um, I get your point when it comes to the live action. There's so many different decks crossover strange new worlds. The only thing is, is I do not believe Mike McMahon actually wrote that. That could have just been those writers. Not, I don't. I didn't like the episode. I know some. A lot of people did. I thought. I thought it was. It, it, yeah. I thought it I, was. I have the, my, it, listen to our review of that. Yeah. Episode to listen because to because I think me and you hit it on the head about that episode. Yeah. Yeah. So let's bookmark that, and we'll get back to it at some point down the road. We'll talk more about Mike McMahon and his potential. Yeah. As a live action showrunner. So another thing, and and we're going to be circling back a bit to something I I mentioned a few moments ago, and that's the idea of the abject. Um, And that deals with also Freudian thoughts, uh, as well as (laughs) things, uh, theories that Julia Kristeva had also floated and also film theorist uh, Barbara Creed when it comes to the presence of brood pods in throats. (laughs) Yes. With their abject and unsettling nature, it does, in fact, tap into many of Creed's thoughts on the fear of a primal mother and castration anxieties. Yes. Uh, The crew members' encounters with these pods force them to confront deep-seated fears and anxieties related to their own vulnerabilities and the unknown. I mean, the concept of procreation through dermal contact... Like Rutherford's <laughs> Rutherford. cave babies. I thought that was so funny. You know, which echoes essentially the roles in shaping our identities, but it also plays into these anxieties. Now, these anxieties themselves, these abject fears, many times are the catalyst of conspiratory, conspiratorial thoughts. The reason why we generate conspiracies isn't always because of the mundane lives that we lead, but also it's associated with anxieties of life, which also leans into existentialism. The idea that we fear things that we don't understand, 
which isn't Star Trek always about communication and bridging the known to the unknown? Mm -hmm. So that being said, when you have Lovecraftian ideas and Freudian thought being floated and merged with philosophical ideas and notions of existentialism and the abject, you create a powerful episode that states a lot of what's happening, or I should say pinpoints the problems not just the symptoms, but the actual catalyst of many of the problems that we're actually going through in today's society. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's probably one of the best episodes of Lower Decks, if not the best episode, just because of all of its content and what it's doing. Because I'm not even getting into 50% because I'm trying to keep this a show that other people can just listen to and not have to listen to a bunch of other philosophical theories. Yeah. You know, some people aren't just not into the heavy theories, but, but there's a lot going on in this episode. It's, it's a really powerful episode. It, It weaves together elements of identity, truth, fear, storytelling, and it draws from the works of Freud, Kristeva, Albert Camus, John Paul Sartre, Barbara Creed to create a thought provoking exploration of the human condition in the face of the unknown. And it brings all together under the umbrella of Roddenberry's own philosophy on the future communication, language and identity. Well, that's the thing that it's brilliant. That's that's the thing that I'm really happy about coming, walking away from this episode and also happy hearing, hearing that me and you are kind of like on the same page, especially the fact that in my own notes, I even brought up the the fact that how does lower decks bring up a film theory like Barbara Creed's monstrous female or the, the yeah. monstrous feminine uh, concept. Yeah. concept. I know what you're talking about yeah. where it's like the thought that basically Female, the female, the female is the whore because she represents like this fear of like David Cronenberg's body horror. Think about that. Like if bringing up like the idea of alien, yeah, where an alien basically pregnates its its own host, not through normal means like of a human, but basically through essentially like a mythology of rape. Yeah. And it doesn't matter about your gender. It could be male or female. The alien does not care. And that whole concept, that whole horror thing. Well, it removes the idea you're talking about has to do with, I believe I might've mentioned the name of it. It's called um, the primal mother. The primal mother. Yeah. And it's this idea that a pregnancy or the procreation does not need the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not the anonymity, the uh, agency of a male of a male. And that's where castration anxieties come in. Yes. And think about it. I mean, like when you look at this episode, you have that moment with in the very beginning with the Vendurians with the, the fact they have brood sex on their net on the neck, yeah. which is just odd in itself. And that, that elicits, you know, imagery of like, body horror on David Lynch and Cronenberg level. Yeah. And you have the next following episode with Rutherford where anything dealing with birth, especially if a male is giving birth is so unnatural and it's so uncanny that it turns into the abject. It turns into the abject and you, 
even you as the audience can't phantom that. You you cannot phantom that because we all know how our how our human bodies are addressed. Yeah. And it's like going, well, how does that freaking work? Yeah. <laughs> well, dude, if you look and if there's people that might be listening saying, well, you guys are definitely pulling a lot of stuff there. Well, go back and watch the episode. It's there. Also, you got to realize you got you to gotta, the way you analyze things, because I know I've had people who are interested in film theory have asked me, where do you begin when it comes to analysis? And I said, well, you got to know a little bit about history. You have to know a little bit about sociology, a lot about philosophy and pretty much everything about film. Mm -hmm. And when you sit down to start analyzing, you have to take into context everything that's within the moment. So for example, who's a part of Star Trek currently in Star Trek Discovery? Cronenberg. Yes. Okay. So there's one association there. Number two. What series did Mike McMahon write on prior to Star Trek Lower Decks that actually delved into Cronenberg-like <laughs> monsters? Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty. Do you take just those aspects alone? And you can see where these writers would easily be influenced. Oh, yeah. And that's the whole thing is like, I, the thing I really enjoy about Lower Decks, I don't feel the writers are forcing it. No. They're letting it naturally come out of out of them as writers because they they are used to writing that way. They're used to writing these themes. And listen, I'm not even saying that they're thinking. Like, I doubt Mike McMahon is riser. All right, so we're going to use Barbara Creed's theory. Exactly, no. Yeah. If you know what you're doing, those ideas are going to find their way into your work. Because they're subliminally or subliminally into your mind. Correct. Correct. So like if you've already studied that, that's why. There may be. I'm not saying they're not. There may be some thoughts there. There, Mike McMahon may think, okay, Cronenberg, um, body horror, um, post-truth world, basic ideas that then if that if you understand those basic ideas, then branch out into more nuanced ideas. Yes. Because and that's why it's important, like what you said, it, when people ask us what true film theory is, you have to be able to know a lot of philosophy, know about human nature. So you have to actually, philosophy is just super key in actually understanding film theory, knowing about film, knowing about its history and knowing about its core themes that a lot of directors and writers talk about. And then on top of that, knowing about some writers, knowing how storytelling is about, correct, knowing your principles and the nature of narrative myths. I mean, there is so much that go into actually properly understanding yeah. um, television, movies, media in general, I guess you can say nowadays. Okay, David. So my final thoughts, excellent episode. I'm going to give this episode a 98%. I'm with you there. I'm, I actually have this written down as a 96 on my, on my notes, just because of like, this surprised me. This episode I always come into like, I know all the past episodes saying, oh, this episode surprised me, but truly that it goes to like what you were, we were alluding to earlier. Every, this past season, it's almost kind of like every single episode is like better than the last, better than the last. It goes up. There's like upticks. Yeah. And I was really surprised how, like when I look back at the other episodes we go, my scores have more or less gone up 
like every single time. The last episode I gave was like an 89. This one's a 96. Yeah, but you like, did get a, you did give episode six a random 97. Around 97. But but also that was because I let my fanboy out. I let I my fanboy out at that one. I don't even remember what episode <laughs> that was. That was my fanboy. But I know that for a fact that that was like my fanboy moment. But yeah. like when you take a look at it, every single time, if you take a step back and actually look at it as a critic, every single episode just has this nice gradual slope and it's so amazing to me that in the time that me and you have covered shows we always see huge uptick and then it goes a deep uh it goes like into a chasm right Mm -hmm. so you have a high peak and then you have a real big drop it's very rare i notice for me and you to cover shows that all of a sudden have just like this slow incline up which feels really nice and gradual. It's like classic television. Uh, what? That's classic television. What? <laughs> the closest one, the closest one I ever thought that basically got gradually it. creating more and more excitement as you fully become more and more invested more and more in invested. the story and actors. What? Yeah. That's and what you're supposed to do. The closest one, even in, in regards to Star Trek, the closest show that I feel does that is Strange New Worlds. Strange New Worlds, I think season, you can make the argument that season one did it. Season one was good, yeah. Where it was like, it started off at this plateau, and then it just slowly started creeping up. But like, when you look at this season of Lower Decks, it's very similar to, I feel like, Strange New Worlds, where we started at a plateau, and I remember me and you were like, oh, where are they going with this? What What's the whole idea about this? But every single episode, we're like going, hey, wait a minute. There's something more going on here. Yeah. <laughs> there's, oh, wait, what about this substance and this substance? Oh, my God. Like, And then we get to this where it's like, I think this is like, for me, the peak of like how he, uh, Mike McMahon and his writing crew have been able to take us on this gradual incline in story, story, uh, storytelling quality. And now it makes me wonder, is the next episode going to outdo this one? how because this is good if i'm not correct the next episode should be the penultimate or should be the season finale i think uh episode this is episode eight so we, eight. we have two more episodes that we have to cover and we are we are a little behind so uh yeah we are getting to the end here i'm happy with this episode quite a bit before this episode aired or before I watched it, I was considering which we may end up not covering lower decks next season, just because I, I don't feel like, um, you know, what? let's talk about the end. Let's yeah. talk about the end at the end. Yeah. All right. You know what, David, this does bring us to the end of our discussion between your score and my score that rounds out to about 97% as a show score, which is very good. And way higher than most people are rating this episode it seems like most people are are sitting between 75 and 80 percent which i don't agree with that and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people probably are watching superficially yes they're not absolutely they're not really sitting down and and trying to unearth all of the the value that this episode actually has to offer no, no, I, I, I 100% agree with you because like I would say in today's world, viewers who watch shows, watch it superficially are probably about like 90% of the audience. Yeah, most people have to have the mindset and yeah. if you tell them, hey, 
this is what's going on. Now watch the episode. Then that's different. Yeah. But most people don't watch to unearth things. They just watch for entertainment value. Oh yeah. We're weird people on this network. <laughs> we're special. <laughs> we're like uh, the Vendurians. Yeah. Hey, listen, that's pretty cool. I'd like to have some people do morality tests. I, all my tests would be sexual morality. Though. <laughs> sexual I just watch from the shadows. In fact, I might even morph into the person having sex. You know, I'm a shapeshifter, right? Like, <laughs> well, does that mean that you would like improve, uh, you, you would enjoy actually impregnating people through the throat? <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. I mean, I would probably morph into whoever seven of nine is dating. Like, <laughs> don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> it's just a test. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to that. Uh, our stupidity. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.